welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. To be honest, I was never a huge fan of writing prompts. I always felt like I should be writing around big ideas, novel-length plots, and concepts that I'd considered in depth. That's no longer the case. Oh, sure, I still have those big plans, but I find that writing prompts, especially when given as part of a group, add a level of accountability, a sense of variety, and the prompt acts like exercise for your writing muscles. They also force you to work quickly, as the writing groups I've participated in have set a 30-40 to minute limit for the writing that's going to be done in response to the prompt. Of course, sometimes, as I've discussed on a previous episode, that can add a note of panic, but that's manageable. One thing that I've discovered with prompts is that they open the door for me to write something that's not in my typical comfort zone, including poetry, memoir, and other more personal ideas. In today's episode, I'm going to share a few of those prompts and the writing that was inspired by them. They're all still rough drafts, but they were still fun and hopefully worthwhile. One of my favorite prompt exercises to do when I'm leading a writing group is what I call the ransom note, inspired by the notes you see in movies where the words have been cut out of newspapers and magazines and pasted to create the message. It's not a new idea. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used it in The Hound of the Baskervilles, and Sherlock Holmes was actually able to identify the newspaper and the edition used based on the words that had been cut out and were used in the message. For writing groups, however, the ransom note is a fun exercise in which you're given an envelope and within it you find a set of unrelated words cut from different publications. It's almost like Mad Libs in reverse. You're given the individual words and instead you need to write the sentences around them. This piece is the result of one of those exercises where I was given the words domestic goddess, glance, time, deck, free, sheet, news, and world to use, and about 30 minutes in which to use them. So here's what I came up with. The bumping from above continued, a metronomic beat that sent wisps of dust curling down from the ceiling. Lavery glanced up. She supposed it was a blessing of sorts. The noise from the OCD domestic goddess cleaning the floor above would serve to drown out any incidental noise that she might make down here as she stole across the dim room. The desk dominated the corner, a massive thing with a top that might have led a fulfilling life as the deck of an aircraft carrier at some point. She slipped around the corner, ignoring the ornate built-ins overloaded with gaudy trophies, photos of celebrity grip and grins, and framed copies of front-page news. With a gloved hand, she pushed the leather and chrome desk chair silently to one side. She had time. She knew the patterns of the house by now, and while she couldn't tarry, there was no need to rush or become careless. Thump. 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 As she knelt and pried the inset panel from the floor... Lavery idly wondered if the vacuum cleaner in use upstairs was writing a pattern of dents in the baseboards, reverse braille for a family of mice. The panel came free with a click. She smiled and set it carefully to the side. Revealed below was the floor safe with its backlit keypad. She had no need to take the sheet of paper from her pocket. The numbers were bright in her mind, the keys to her brand new world. 
Prior to getting that prompt, I had never met Lavery before, but by the time I reached the end of it, I was left with a new character who might be fun to explore later. What's in the safe? Who's she stealing from? How did she get the information she needed? What happens next? Who knows? But she exists now, so I might just have to go back and find out. Prompts don't solely need to be words, though. Over the past few weeks, my writing group has been using exclusively images and photos as our prompts. Most recently, one of the options was a painting of Anne Hutchinson, a key figure in the pursuit of religious freedom in the New England colonies. I've posted the painting by artist Valerie DeBrule on the Pretending to Write Facebook page, and I encourage you to take a look at it. When I looked at it closely, I saw that Anne's quaff included faint words that were representative of her. The image of those words became the inspiration for this piece that I wrote about my daughter. Inventive. At dinner, you proclaim the name of the next great restaurant chain, Burp and Burger. We have a winner. Goddess. You leap from the diving board as though to take flight, like Wonder Woman or a Valkyrie. Even when gravity imposes its will, the splash is a thing of beauty and your smile upon surfacing achieves mythic proportions. Relentless. But Dad, let me explain. But there's just one more thing. No, you haven't let me finish. I'm going to do it. And then there are those epic stare-downs as the I've had enough count begins to reach three. Formidable. Butt-kicker in every game of sorry. Smasher of dreams in Uno. Crusher of hopes on the Nintendo Switch. A steely-eyed glare that erupts into giggles. An amazing brain that seeks out and finds the weaknesses in any of my arguments testing the safe people in your life, and finding the perfect stress point with which to inflict guilt. Courageous. Insisting on using the big kid tower and slide at the playground when you're only two and a half. Climbing to the peak of the rope and pipe diamond before the official signs say you're old enough. Zipping around the corner and out of sight on your bike without a look back. Perhaps it's a lack of sense of self-preservation, or an inherent sense of immortality, or just a calculated effort to make me go gray faster. Guardian. There are times you don't seem to need me anymore, except to drive you somewhere, or to pull cash from my wallet. But then you call out when you're hurt, or I tuck your sleeping self back in before I head to bed, and I figure, yeah, I guess you do need me to stick around, even when you're shouting, I hate you! and muttering, stupid jerk, in that tone modulated perfectly to push the envelope and just barely reach my ears. And I grit my teeth and still know that I love you more than anything I've ever loved before. The members of my writing group have suggested that I keep those words for two reasons. First, so I can write new responses to them next year and the year after that and so on. And secondly, so I can read it at a rehearsal dinner sometime in the far, far, far future. Prompts don't always have to result in standalone pieces. I've discovered that they can also loop back to my bigger projects and they've been a huge help. For example, recent prompts have inspired new scenes or helped me over some hurdles on planned scenes for the sequel to Circle's Call, my fantasy novel. 
I'm also immersed in writing a contemporary murder mystery. It's a genre I've always loved, but never had the guts to try out. As I'm working out the plotting and the mysteries within, prompts have led to the creation of new characters, situations, and even possible clues like a used donut bag, all within the overall framework. These pieces may or may not end up being used in the final book, but in the meantime, they keep my head in the game and my fingers on the keyboard. This is the case with the writing done after seeing a photo of a heart-shaped sculpture, which I've posted to the Pretending to Write Facebook page, courtesy of Esme DeVault. I wasn't so interested in the sculpture itself as the pair of legs that could be seen on the other side of it. Who was that person? What were they thinking? Those questions led to this excerpt, which takes place in present-day Shelton's Cove. You may remember it as the home of my Phantasmagoria short story and protagonist Hattie McClernand. Now, this as-yet-unnamed mystery involves Hattie's great-grandson, Jeff McClernand, a local police officer now investigating the murder of a visitor to this small main town. I came off duty Sunday morning and found myself promptly enveloped by a classic Maine fog, one touched by the red gold of sunrise. It reduced the harbor to faint shadows and the muffled sounds of lapping waves, distant clanging, and the ting-ting of halyards on aluminum masts. No cars rolled through town at this hour. There were no shouts of friendly greetings, barks of laughter, or chiming of social media alerts. Everything was smothered and softened. Maggie smiled as I stepped through the back door of the foreign correspondent. Hey, we're not open yet. Are you here for your weekly protection payoff? I smiled back. No, ma'am, just a poor, weary officer of the law in desperate need of sustenance before going home to fall asleep and dream about lineups full of apprehended criminals. With a laugh, she poured me a cup of tea and a minute later handed me a hot, fresh breakfast sandwich. Here you go. This one's on the house. Now off with you, you freeloader. Some of us have to work for a living. I gave her a quick kiss on the cheek, covertly slipped a $10 bill into her apron pocket, and headed back out into the mists. The morning was a frustratingly apt choice of weather for my state of mind. More questions than answers, and no clear picture of what was going on. If Melanie Buck wasn't Melanie Buck, who was she? Had there been a second person in her car when she arrived home that last time? And why was Fred Garrett dead? Distorted shapes loomed as I wove among the sculptures of Veterans Memorial Park and found a bench at the base of the gently sloping hill. On a clear day, I'd be looking out over the harbor towards Finian's Bar and Kid's Mound with the swells of the Atlantic beyond. But now, I was lost among the rolling mist in which the shadows of several trawlers rippled and flowed. Then I heard the voice. I was a stranger in the city. Out of town were the people I knew. I had that feeling of self-pity. What to do, what to do, what to do. The singing stirred me from my reverie. Someone behind me, among the sculptures, had broken into a smoky rendition of Gershwin. Her voice was rich and, while not loud, carried easily through the gradually brightening fog. I turned and peered behind me to see if I could spot the singer. The outlook was decidedly blue, but as I walked through the foggy streets alone, it turned out to be 
the luckiest day I've known. Shades of Ella Fitzgerald in that voice, I thought. Then it broke off with a velvety laugh, as though the singer had realized how she was verging into 1930s movie musical territory. But there was no orchestral swelling or appearance by Fred Astaire, just the cries of several gulls and the distant rumble of a car ignition. Another throaty laugh, and then she continued. A foggy day in London town Had me low and had me down I viewed the morning with alarm The British Museum had lost its charm My mother loved Gershwin and Ella. I'd listened to this song innumerable times, knew it by heart, could still hear my mother singing it as she painted in her studio. Part of me considered joining in, but then I remembered that a college girlfriend described my singing voice as, quote, the punishment meted out to evil tenors when they're sent to hell, unquote. The voice grew louder, and for just a moment, I glimpsed purple hiking boots and the bottom half of a pair of shapely cafe au lait colored calves peeking out from beneath the edge of Heart of the Sea, the sculpture nearest me, and then the fog swirled in as she began to sing once more and move away. How long I wondered could this thing last, but the age of miracles hadn't passed, for suddenly I saw you there, and through foggy London town the sun was shining everywhere. I sat back, closed my eyes, and finished my tea as Gershwin's words in a smoky voice well-suited for a dark, intimate club vanished into the morning. Quite a few years ago, in response to another prompt, I wrote the start of a story that might have been classified almost as a romance, It involved a woman named Maggie Baird, the owner of a Vermont cafe called The Foreign Correspondent, but I never took it any farther as I wasn't sure what to do with it. Now, it's a perfect example of why you should never throw your scribblings away. Maggie and The Foreign Correspondent have made their way to Shelton's Cove, where Maggie just happens to be Jeff's cousin, and her cafe is named after their great-grandfather, Hattie, who we'll discover in future short stories becomes a foreign correspondent in World War I. That was one of those delightful moments of recognition that makes being a writer so much fun. Thanks for joining me this week and for putting up with my singing. Maybe someday I'll get back to musical theater with a proper director and actual rehearsals, but for the moment I appreciate you suffering through it. I hope you found these brief pieces interesting. As I said earlier in the episode, the two visual prompts have been posted on Facebook on the Pretending to Write page. I hope you'll check them out, follow the page, and share writing prompts that you've found inspiring in the past. I'll also be sharing prompts there from time to time as well in case you want to play along. So, until we read again, please enjoy a great book or two, and be sure to support your local library, especially when town and city budgets are tightening, as well as your local independent bookseller. The content of the Epic Pencil is copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.